0: amen (laughs) i don't often get to hear the congregation singing from in the congregation um and i'll be honest sometimes up here it is hard to hear um just the way the acoustics work in this room they're meant to go that way um and so sitting right over there listening to this congregation singing today i just want to say it's a joy such a joy um Church, I just want to say hi and welcome. Uh, my name is Matt, and I am elder here, um, pastor, um, actually soon to not be the kind of soul, um, which we'll be talking about more of that, what that means in a little while, but not today. Um, but I just want to say hi and welcome. We've got a few faces, a few folks who are a little bit newer, um, and just want to say welcome to you. Glad that you would join us today. For those who might be online, also welcome. I'm glad that you're with us. Um, We know that it is not possible for everyone to be here. Uh, We know that we have some of our, actually, I'd say some of our most or more faithful folks who are, for whatever reason, prevented from being here and who are online. And it is a joy to know that God's power just kind of goes. And in this day and age, it just keeps going and going, and we don't even know where. Uh, And so that's just so awesome. I want to say welcome. I want to say just I love that we are here to worship the Lord today. And we come now to the time where we're going to be getting into the Word, and I prayed joyfully into just a really neat text today. So before I do so, I'd like to pray, as we often do, um, so that we might really focus ourselves, our own hearts, our minds on the Lord, and on what the Lord is doing. God, would you please meet with us, as you have been in song, Lord, I pray that you would meet with us in your word, God, that your spirit would speak to us, that your spirit would guide us today and lead us through these words that are on the paper, that they may become words that are written on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that the, the words that I would speak would be the, the words that you would have me speak and that there would be nothing that I would say outside of your instruction today. We pray, God, for your power in this place on me, as well as on all of us that we might hear, believe, and know. Amen. Amen. When I first got glasses, hey, thanks, Rick. Uh, When I first got glasses, I was in my 20s. I had somehow managed to make it through all of my teenage years not being aware of what I was missing. And when I got glasses for the first time, I was amazed at all that I could see, but honestly I was more amazed at all that I had not been able to see. Suddenly I learned that one is supposed to be able to see the individual leaves on a tree. Did you know that trees are not just a green mass and in the fall a mass of of tie-dye? I didn't. It was amazing, the sharpness of rocks on cliffs in the distance. My love for creation grew all the more, because suddenly I could enjoy it, because suddenly in my life, everything came into focus. And this is a lot like the moment that we're going to be reading about today in John's gospel, the moment when it becomes clear. When everything comes into focus. We're in John chapter 13 today. We've been in John chapter 13 for a few weeks now. In fact, a few months. Um, And we are going to be finishing out this chapter um, in our quest to work all the way through the book of John. So today we're going to be starting in verse 31. Now just as a quick point of context, because not everybody was here last week, John uh, chapter 13 verse 31 picks up right after kind of the Lord's Supper. It picks up right after Jesus has made it clear to Peter and to John that Judas is about to betray him. And what you read about in verse 30 is that Judas has now left the building. His mind, his heart is set on sin His mind and his heart is set on betraying Jesus, and that's where we pick up in verse 31. In fact, it tells us, and this is where we'll start reading, that when he, that's Jesus, had gone out. So that just kind of paints the picture that we see here as we come in to this text today. Because it's very much, what's that? When Judas is gone, did I say Peter? Jesus, Jesus is not gone. I am thankful for my wife. Judas is gone. Jesus is there with his disciples. Wow, this might be a long morning. Who knows? So it says, when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I'm with you, you seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Friends, I want to say that there is no worthier pursuit That we can pursue in this life than pursuing Jesus clearly. To know Jesus clearly. There is no worthier pursuit that we could spend our passions on, our life on, our time, our money, our energy, anything. To know Jesus, to see him clearly is worth everything. You need to know this before we get into the rest of this passage. And as I look out at this room and I think about the disciples of our church and in this community, I know that some of you have been on that lifelong pursuit. Whether you are in your 20s and that has been your pursuit or you are in your 80s or 90s and that has been the decades, almost century-long pursuit of your life, you know it's worth it. Amen? Some of us, though, maybe we've only been recently pursuing Jesus. Maybe we've only recently in our lives begun to pursue Jesus, clearly to know him and to understand what he said and taught and what he wants for us. To you I say amen as well, right? Because even if you've only been on this journey a short time, there is more to come. In fact, friends, there is an eternity to come if you would give your life to this pursuit. Maybe you're one who could not care less about this Jesus. Maybe you are one who's sitting here today because someone dragged you here and made you come. And if you had your way, you would still be in bed sleeping last night's hangover off. To you, I want to share something with you. My prayer for you is that you would become someone who would pursue this Jesus. That you would pursue this one who has done nothing in eternity, really, but pursue you for the glory of God. Okay? Friends, I don't know where each one of you are today, but I imagine you are somewhere in this spectrum. I remember when I first got my glasses. I said to myself as I got into my car to drive home, I should have done this sooner. To every one of us, I would invite you to not wait one more day before deciding with your whole life to passionately pursue Jesus because there is no other pursuit but that that is worth your time, your life, your energy, your money, your anything. My hope for us today is that we would see Jesus clearly. Now, I'm going to be honest, to see Jesus clearly takes more than 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. But that we might see how Peter saw Jesus clearly in this this day. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at first the glory of God, because that's what this whole passage is bathed in. And then we're going to land in this Peter part of the passage. And see exactly what it looks like for Peter when, suddenly clear, when, when clarity comes to him. When suddenly it all makes sense. But that he's still missing a few crucial pieces. And we're going to look at what those few crucial pieces are. So I want to start today in the glory of God. And we're going to look at a few things that we can see in this. So starting in verse 31. Let me just read this for us again. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is also glorified in Him. Now let me tell you, that Jesus' glory, this is what you might write down if you're taking notes, Jesus' glory is best seen in His work on the cross. Jesus' glory is best seen in His work on the cross. In other words, the cross reveals the glory of Christ. Now, if you endeavor to do some Bible study, one of the things that you may do is you may start with the Bible you usually use. For me, that's the ESV. And then you might think, hey, what uh, other translations are there? What other words might I find? And you might open the King James Version or the NIV or the CEV or any number of other translations. They're not all created equal, but they're all also Mostly pretty good. <laughs> what you will le- read in this section, in verses 31 and 2, is that the verbs look very different. Those who translated the Bible from Greek to English weren't quite sure always how the verb tenses were supposed to land. And so in some, all these verbs of glory are present. And in some, they're present, and then they're a little bit future. Future. I would point out that none of them are in the past. None of them. The reason for that is because it is up until this time that Jesus' glory has not been seen, but hidden. And it is only now, in the moment where Judas has set his face on betraying Jesus, that the true glory of Christ is becoming available for all to see. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, here, all the translations agree on that. It is in this moment, as Jesus is looking to just being ours from the cross. The time has come for Jesus' full glory to be shown. The fullness of Christ is seen in his giving of his life over for the salvation of sinners like you and I. The fullness of Christ is seen as Jesus gives his life for his friends. Now you will meet people who will say, what is Jesus all about? They'll say, well, Jesus is all about being a teacher. All right, he's a pretty good teacher. You will meet people who will say that Jesus is all about the revolution. You will meet people who say that Jesus is all about being a social justice warrior. But the scriptures tell us that his glory is most fully known as he walks to the cross and gives his life as a ransom for you and I. It is fully known as he is betrayed Arrested, tried falsely, tortured, humiliated, nailed to the cross, removed from his union with God, pierced in the side, and breathed his last breath. This is the glory of God. Church, this is Christ. How is it that the God of the universe is most fully known in his death? Another way to say all of this is that Jesus is most himself when he is rescuing his people from their sin. He is most himself when he's rescuing his people from sin. We see him the most clearly. Did you know that when you sin and are in need of a rescue, that when Christ shows up in that moment, he is most himself? Most himself. Some of us think that when we sin, there is no hope for us. But Christ is our hope because that is where he shines. The best view of the glory of Christ is in his work on the cross. The glory in this passage doesn't end at Christ. Right after that, it moves on to God, the Father, says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. So the Son is glorified, and in Him, and in the work He's doing, the Father too is glorified. In other words, what we see is that not only does the cross reveal to us Christ, But the cross also reveals to us the Father. We see the Father as well in the cross and what happens here. The amazing thing about God and his glory is simply this. God does not get added to. Which means this is all about the revelation. This is revealing who God is as the glory comes upon him. The cross reveals the glory of the Father. Now how? How does the cross reveal the glory of the Father? Well, first, we we see God. We begin to see His character and His nature play out in a way that maybe we've missed. First of all, we see His justice. We see His justice. That sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. Nobody gets off without the punishment. There is justice, and God is the the just giver, right? He's the one who is just, Romans 3, 23 through 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On the cross, we see justice working. There is punishment for sins. There's a punishment for sin that you and I can't bear ourselves, and we never could. And here on the cross, what we see is that God is not shying away from the punishment of sins. I gotta tell you, as a father, the thing I hate the most is being just with my kids. I hate it. I hate having to set the rule and the law and the enforcement of those things when it goes awry. I hate it. If I could avoid it, I would. But if I did, I wouldn't be just. God is just. And he proves his justice on the cross that sin must be punished. Of course, that only works because God is not just just, but he's also merciful. And so he looks at people like you and I, and he thinks, they can't handle it. They can't do it. You and I can't handle the just punishment for sin. We can't bear it. We can't endure it. And because of that, we can't come out of it on the other side with life. And so he does the only thing that is reasonable, and it's not even reasonable to us, but to him, and that is to take his son who can bear it, who is powerful enough and good enough to go through that and come out of it the other side and become again the Lord of life, Back to Romans 3.36, he is the justifier, the one through whom we are justified, because we could not be justified by ourselves. In his mercy, Jesus takes the sin of our lives, all of it upon himself. He faces that punishment for us, because he is a God who is full of mercy, a God who is full of mercy, and of course, that is because of his love. It is divine love that carries this through. John 3, 16, a verse most of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, which less of us know. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, God is just. And his justice is matched by his mercy. And his mercy then is covered in love in such a way that you and I can be saved by Christ on the cross. We see the Father better through Christ on the cross than I would argue through all the rest of the pages. It is in the cross that Christ is revealed. It is in the cross that God is revealed. He is not some grumpy old man sitting in heaven scowling at us. He is a father who loves us and has done everything needed that we might be saved into eternity. We see who the father truly is in this moment. If we've missed it all the rest of the time. So we see Christ, the Son, glorified. We see the Father glorified. And then what we see in our next verse is that God will restore the glory of the Son. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Some translations take that at once and say soon Others say right away. There's one thing that says before long. <laughs> okay. The idea here is that because Christ is glorified, because we see him for who he is, because we see God for who God is, God will then glorify the Son and do it soon. Now, the interesting thing here is this last glorify in the Greek is in the future tense. So the first two are already happening simultaneously; they're present. The next one is future, but we're told it's not a distant future; it's a now future. It's a now future is in like you know the next day, the next short amount of time. God will restore the glory of the sun. See, when glory is used in that future tense, it actually is about restoration. The first two glories are about revealing. They show us who they are, who God is, who Christ is. In this, though, he is restored. And friends, what is Christ restored to? First, the Son will be restored to life. He is going to his death. But the Father will restore him to life. How soon? Soon, in fact, in four days from this moment, he will be raised to new life. The Lord of life gets his life back. It is restored to him. Second, how is the Father going to restore the glory of the Son? By bringing him to the right hand of him, of God. And so not only is Christ's life restored, but his position is restored. Hebrews 1, 3-4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The son is restored to his position of glory at the father's right hand. The sun is restored. As we continue our theme of glory here, we get to verse 34. Which if you were with us last week, you know this is what we talked about last week. This is the greatest commandment. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, we spent a whole sermon on this last week. We're not going to spend very much time in here. What you need to know as we continue this theme of glory, though, and look at all of this together, is that Christ is glorified most when we are acting most like Him. He calls us to love one another right out of all this glory happening in the first couple verses. Right? Christ is glorified. The Father is glorified. Christ is then glorified again. And then guess what? Christ keeps getting glorified by you and I as we love each other in Christ's name. In the ways that he would love us. And if you need more detail on that, go to last week's sermon and check that out. John Piper, an older and honestly much wiser pastor than myself, wrote that God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied in him and it's completely true. And I would add to it though that the way that we demonstrate our satisfaction in him is by being like him. By loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same ways that Christ would love us. And that finally then leads us through all this glory to Peter. To Peter. To Peter who glorifies Jesus here as best he can. I want you to hear this well as we come into this part of the sermon with Peter. That Peter is about to glorify Jesus as best he can. Peter often is the butt of our jokes. Peter often is that guy who says the wrong thing at the wrong time. Who does not get what's going on. Jesus actually chastises him more than he chastises Judas in the scriptures. Peter is always the butt of my jokes. The reason is, is because I know that when I look at my spiritual life, I'm just like Peter, and I'm making fun of myself when I make fun of Peter. I want to tell you something about Peter in this passage, though. He's not the hero, and we know that, right? We look at it, we're like, dude, Peter messed up again. Yes. Peter messed up again. Yet again, Peter says something and Jesus is like, eh, no. But Peter here, Peter here gets it. Peter here gets it. The funny thing about Peter in this passage is it at least seems on paper that Peter completely misses the greatest commandment. And most scholars actually agree on this when they're talking about this. They point out that Peter... Like Jesus is talking, he, he says, I'm leaving. And at that point, Peter's just stuck on Jesus leaving. And he never hears the greatest commandment. He doesn't, doesn't process it. He's stuck on the last words and he skips over it. And Peter's just like, wait a minute. Because Jesus has said, I'm leaving. And Peter says, no. <laughs> right? Peter says, well, where are you going? He ignores the fact that the greatest commandment even happens. And he goes back to what Jesus said. Let me read this for us again. Peter is not the hero, but he's also not the butt of our jokes today. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me. Three times. As we read this, what we need to see is that Peter gets it. The guy who never gets it, gets it. He and John are the only two people in this group who knows that Judas is the one who's about to betray Jesus. And he knows that Judas is left to go do that very thing. And then Jesus says, and I'm leaving. And where you can't, where I'm going, you can't come. Friends, Peter gets it. Peter gets to what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm headed to Rome. I'm headed down the street. I'm going to my buddy's house. You can't come with me. No, he's saying I'm going to die. Because of what Judas is about to do, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be carried off. And I'm going to be dead. And Peter gets it. Peter gets it. And then what we see of Peter in this is these bold declarations. He's unwilling to be apart from Jesus. He is unwilling to be anywhere where Jesus is not. And if that means for Peter, hear this well, that Peter's got to die too, then Peter's going, "Amen." amen. Peter knows what he's asking for here. He is asking to die with Jesus. His understanding is clear and true. His desire is to die with Jesus. His bold willingness puts it all out there for everyone to see. But he is missing the power to act on his understanding, on his desire, and on his bold willingness. He has understanding. He has desire. He has bold willingness. But what he doesn't have is power. And because of that, Jesus tells him that he will fail. You will betray me three times, not just once, by morning. Friends, the power for Peter has not yet been turned on. Yesterday I was working on an electrical project. So I did the safe thing that if I'm honest I rarely do, and I turned the breaker off. Not only that, but I had no idea what the electrical in this house that I was working on was doing, so I actually turned the master breaker off as well. I did my work. I rewired. I did what I needed to do to make it all safe and, and get everything working just fine. And then I went and I turned the breaker back on and nothing. If you ever done electrical work or plumbing work, that's my bane, you know that there are moments where you do everything and suddenly you just don't know why it's not working. And so I you know, I retrace the lines, make sure I worked on the right thing. I check my work, make sure it's all wired right, and that everything's and everything looks great. And about the time when I'm kind of freaking out about not knowing what to do, Betsy looks over and she says, did you turn both breakers on? <laughs> and I hadn't. Did you know that everything can be right? But if you're not attached to the power, you get nothing. You get nothing. Friends, you need to hear this. Because this is too many of us. This is too many of us. We have the understanding of what Jesus is and what he requires of us. We have the understanding, we have the knowledge. We are Bible scholars. We have a desire to glorify God. There's this part of us that's sitting there going, Lord, I want to glorify you with my life in some way. We may even have a bold willingness to do it all. A bold willingness that causes us to go out the door to do what we need to do. But when all comes down to it, we are absolutely powerless to act on his understanding on desire and our boldness. We are powerless. So we look at Peter. We say, well, Peter had understanding. Peter had desire. He had a bold willingness to go and die. And yet Jesus says, no, Peter, you can't do it. You can't do it. Why? Because Jesus knows the truth. Peter's not plugged into anything. Now to Peter's credit, this is why we're not going to throw Peter under the bus. To Peter's credit, there is no cross to live in. There is no cross of Christ yet. There is no Jesus having died on the cross yet. There is none of that. 1 Corinthians one through 22-25 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Hear that. To the rest of the world, this is nuts. It's ridiculous that you and I would give our Sunday mornings up for this, to give our lives, our pursuit up for this. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greece, Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is Christ's power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, the power of Christ is the cross. We may be men and women who live in the power of the cross. We may be men and women who live outside of that power. Those who live in the power of Christ hear this. They are... They are people, if you live in the power of the cross, who know that there is no power, no ruler, no person, no sin, no trouble that can take them away from their salvation in Christ Jesus. There is nothing. And if you live in the power of the cross, you know that. And you live out of that. There is nothing. To live in the power of the cross is to live in boldness for Christ. Not just in the word, as Peter did, but also indeed, Those of us who live in the power of Christ are going to actually do the excited things we get excited about. Those who live in the power of Christ, and ch- Christian, you may need to hear this today. They are people who seek to put to death the sin in their lives. And the sin in the lives of others that they love. I cannot look at my brothers in Christ and see sin and think, oh well. Because the cross rules. I can't look at my own life and see clear sin and think, eh, it'll be okay. No. If we are people who are living in the power of the cross and we look to Christ who was crucified so that sin would be put to death, then we too are people who are going to do our best to put sin to death. So Peter's without the cross. Jesus knows this. And by the way, it's no fault of Peter, right? It hasn't happened yet. Number two, what's Peter missing? Peter is missing the Holy Spirit. Peter's missing the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15 through 17. Now as a preview, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we'll get to that verse in, it's about, you know, what, 14, 15 verses away sometime next year. Uh, (laughs) Right? Really, I mean, we'll get to it in, I think it's three weeks, but um, what we see in John 14, 15 through 17 is Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, the one who will come and help, who will empower. Well, Peter's making these bold declarations, and Jesus is like, Peter, I wish it was true, but you don't have the ability yet. I haven't given it to you. So let me say about this. That as Christians who are full of the Holy Spirit, right, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. That's a, you should come back. We should not be living in our own strength and our own power. Peter in this passage is. He's in his own strength and his own, sp- own power. As Christians, we are called to live in the Spirit's power of our lives, to follow where the Spirit would lead us. To go where we would go, to do the things that he calls us to do. And friends, I want to tell you this. Christ would not have promised the Spirit for us if living with the Spirit and in the Spirit was optional. Not only is Peter not plugged into the cross, he's not plugged into the Holy Spirit. Lastly, what's missing from Peter? What's missing from Peter? Friends, the church is missing from Peter. See, Christ calls Peter to be the head of the church. But it hasn't happened yet. And so here you have Peter who's trying to do this on his own. It's not even trying to do it with his disciples. When Peter ultimately fails three times, is he around any of his brothers in Christ? He is standing by himself in the dark. Each time that Peter denies Jesus, his brothers are nowhere to be seen. His community is, those who would lift him up, prop him up and say, "Hey, Peter, wait a minute, dude, you already did it once. Don't do it again." in the same way that the church now might encourage one another, to build each other up, to push each other to greatness in the glory of Christ. Peter didn't have that. Ephesians 4:11 through15. schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is at the head into Christ Christians i have met people who proclaim to be christians who think they have no need for the church who think that they're good on their own despite the fact that scripture right here in ephesians 4 tells us that that god has called the church together for the purpose of equipping and training up until we have made to the measure the full stature of Christ. So let me tell you this, Christian, you don't need the church if you have somehow attained to the full measure of the stature of Christ. I mean, is that any of us? It's not me. I need you guys more than you need me probably. Some of us, though, The living or trying to live in the power of the cross, full of the Holy Spirit, have neglected the church of God. And it is a detriment not only to themselves, but to the very church. Because when you leave, when you go out on your own, what that does is it takes you away from those who need you. It's selfishness to decide that you do not need the church. So I need to say something real quick here. For some of us, this might be preaching to the choir, but for others of us, let's just be honest. We moved to online services months ago, and there are some people that we have not seen since. They say they're going to come back. Your pastor doesn't believe you. Now, that does not include those who need to be gone, right? We have people who have had surgery recently. We have people who are in medical trouble. We have people who legitimately do not, should not, or could not be here. Amen. Take care of yourself. But what I see in some of us, though, is this. They're gone for a week, and they're online, and it's great. And then others are like crickets in the wind. (laughs) There's nothing there. Now let me also say this. If you are someone online, I guess I'm speaking to the online people right now. If you are online and you don't live here in this community, or if you do, you need to be a part of a church. If that's our church, amen. If you're here in town, come be a part of this. If you can, let us know you're there so we know that you're a part of it. If you do not live in this community, then I want to charge you to go to church where you live. I do. I want to charge you to fall in love to become a part of a local body of believers that need you and that you need. To be built up and to grow. If you need help doing that, I'm talking online people I guess still. <laughs> we got a contact link on our webpage, cal- calvarylahuna.org Hit that, put your name in, say I need help finding a church, I live here. I'll go out of my way to help you find a church wherever you live. We need the church. Our people need the church. We need each other. Peter does not have, he does not have the cross. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He does not have the church. And what happens to him, he fails and he falls. The scary thing about Peter Is that his story could be any one of ours? The scary thing about Peter is that he has every excuse, but we don't. We have the cross. Christ has died for our sins. We have been given the Spirit if we are in him. We have the church existing to build us up and push us and cause us to grow. If you think you have an excuse, Christian, you don't. You don't. Peter is living pre-cross, pre-spirit, pre-church. We are not. So let me just be really clear. If you are one who is living a powerless Christian life, if you are one who is living an inept Christian life, if you are one who is living... Pre cross, pre Holy Spirit, pre church, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. Christ died for you. And he gave you the Holy Spirit. And he gave you a church, the church, to build you up and lift you up. You have no excuse. And neither do I. None of us do. Now, I know that for some of us, we might be someone who has never given our life over to Jesus. We might be someone who has never found ourselves on the path of pursuit of Christ. If that's you today, then I urge you, you too are post-cross, post-the giving of the Holy Spirit, and post-the making and the forming of the church. You have no excuse either. And Christ is calling to you to come to him and follow him and to give your life to the passionate pursuit of knowing him clearly. I urge you to follow him. If you are someone who has been a Christian, and you've been living outside of that power, outside of being plugged in from these things, then here's the great news. Christ hasn't given up on you. I have known so many believers who for so long decades many decades lived in this way only to have christ finally show them in such a way that they need to pursue him that it was undeniable and their lives were changed at 50 60 70 80s even 90 years old as we come into the time of communion today my invitation for you is to contemplate this church are you living in the cross Are you living full of the Holy Spirit? Are you living plugged into the church? Or are you lacking in one of those areas? If you are, then this is a great opportunity to lay that sin down before the Lord, to confess it to him. He is faithful and just. He will forgive us. And as you come forward, you lay that down at his feet, and as you will pick up the cup, to remember what he's done for us. We know that this is not about what we do. It's about what he has done for us. But not just done for us, but what he's still doing for us when we are plugged into him. When we are plugged into that power that he has given us that we might not do what Peter did and fall flat on our faces three times before morning.